a British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV. Hello and welcome to the British TV podcast, show number 66. All right. I'm Ryan in Seattle. I'm Chrissy in Seattle. How you doing, Chrissy? Good. How are you? I'm good. Back at work. You came and saw where I worked. Yes, you had a yesterday. birthday and your co-workers... We sort of have no money at all and no budget, really. And all we have is our imaginations, some streamers, and our photocopier. So we come up with theme birthdays, and we all try to bring stuff from home and make it as cool as possible for no money. And in the past, and it's always based on the person's interests. And so in the past, I've had a Vegas birthday. I had a Darren Brown birthday one year. I still have my Darren Brown. um, They made me a Darren Brown stapler, so I still have that just putting pictures on him. Wow. And they changed my password to Darren. I mean, they and my desktop and everything else. And I last year it was a British comedy birthday, but it was the British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan birthday yesterday. So they, they blew up all sorts of stuff from our website and made it look like a little studio with a microphone and on-the-air recording signs in neon, and it was big fun. So you had to come check it out, too. It was very impressive. I posted a picture on Twitter. Join our Twitter account, Brit TV Podcast, and you can see it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Too lazy to put it on the website. This week's show, we have reviews, news, what's on British TV this week, shows running in the United States, DVD releases, and a look back at the best of 2010. Hey. You've got a list ready, right? No. <laughs> it's in my brain. I'll talk about plenty, though. Okay. Excellent. Yes, it was that was that was last night was my plan to do it and I was felled by a migraine, so oh. but I have fewer of them than I used to, so it's not it's it's good. It's just when the weather is going to shift from one sort of when it's been a certain way for a while and it's gonna shift, that seems to knock migraines into my head. I don't know why, but hmm. we were coming to the end of the cold spell and starting to get wetter and warmer, so that's what did it, I think. Yeah, speaking of Twitter, let's see, what did I tweet about this week? Holy smoke, I did not recognize Sarah Smart playing Don French's mum in Little Crackers. Have you seen that one yet? No, I haven't. Now, she was Jane Hall, right? The bus driver, Sarah Smart. That's where I think I know her Yes, from. and she yeah. also was in At Home with the Braithwise. She yeah, was the uh, daughter that knew about the lottery winnings. But the Little Crackers was about they were selected to get a visit from the Queen Mom. Her, her dad was in the service, and they were on an RAF base, and they were chosen as a typical British family to represent the RAF when the Queen Mother came. And, of course, her mother made a big fuss all about it. And uh, young Don was sort of cowered at the sight of the Queen Mum. She'd been reading Snow White a little too much, and so she had this <laughs> creepy view of old ladies who claim to be queens. Oh, dear. But, yeah, after the credits were rolling, and, I'm, and I was like, oh, who was the, the mother there? And I was like, oh, Sarah Smart. Gosh, didn't recognize her at all. She, it's been a while since I've seen her in anything, but I think she's great. Well, yeah, I'm going to start watching them. I've only watched Stephen Fry's, but I've got them all now, so... I shall start. Bill Bailey cheated. He did not do a story about himself as a youth. He basically made a little short about a grumpy guy at a shopping center during Christmas who spurns a charity guy and then gets tripped up by the voices behind the machines. All right. Well, my mom expressed interest in watching it with me, so maybe this weekend we'll dive into it. If I go up there, she comes to see me. Yeah, they were really good. Now, you thought that Abigail's song on the Doctor Who Christmas special was very similar to a Laurie Anderson song from 1980. Yeah, the orchestration, I thought, was very similar to that, too. And that song was a big, big hit for her. It didn't chart at all in the United States. It went to number two 
as just kind of a fluke. The Brits loved it. So maybe it was internalized by Murray Gold and he was doing a little tribute, except I think it's Ben Foster who does the orchestrations, if I'm not mistaken. Murray Gold just writes the music. That's correct. So, and Ben Foster's a child. He's only, he's youngster. I know he only graduated college in 2000, so he's pretty oh, really? young to be a conductor. Wow. Yeah, he, yeah he's a yeah, child he's prodigy there. I was wondering what the relationship is between a composer and the orchestrator is because you know who's taking credit for mm-hmm. what because you know murray gold gets all the credit you know, he writes all this great music and all these great themes and stuff like that but you know orchestrators do an awful lot of the heavy they lifting. do i've noticed ben's name popping up too in the credits more than it used to so whether he's taking on some of the incidental music and actually writing it now or murray just wanted to give credit but i'm mean, it's a huge thing he's doing too. Yeah, I just always kind of wonder how those relationships work professionally, that that's sort of the price you pay for doing the orchestrations. Because, uh, you know, John Williams worked his way up that way. Him and Alexander Courage used to do orchestrations for uh, various big-name guys and then eventually got to do their own music themselves. And now, of course, they have orchestrators yep. working silently. But I don't know how that works in the music industry. Maybe someone could tell me. And then uh, I watched the first episode of Primeval, and I tweeted that it's a great time waster, completely disposable TV, but it delivers what's printed on the tin. I mean, it is a run-and-jump show with monsters in it. <laughs> and you either like those kind of programs. I mean, Irwin uh, Allen perfected that kind of TV show back in the 1960s, and I grew up on that kind of stuff. And the, the kid in me still enjoys watching it. But by no means would I say it's great television. So <laughs> if you like that stuff, watch it yourself. So reviews... Just William. Yes, it's for kids, but the new BBC adaptation of Just William has a delightful charm and a great cast. Daniel Roche is a superb child actor and really knows how to play mischievous schoolboys as seen in Outnumbered and Little Crackers, where he was the young Stephen Fry. Rebecca Front plays his mom, while Warren Clark and Carolyn Quentin are a nouveau riche couple with a spoiled daughter named Violet Elizabeth. Ooh, I hate her already. William is forced by his mom to have a playdate with Violet, ick, girls. And she knows that by threatening to cry, she has him wrapped around her little finger. But Violet is a good sport, too, and on a day out with William and his gang, proves able to rough and tumble and get dirty with the best of them, and not rat them out either when they get caught. Simon Nye wrote the scripts based on the books by Rich Mall Crompton, which spanned decades, but Nye has settled for a nice 1950s period piece. And we did a feature on Simon Nye back in show 32 when he wrote the Doctor Who episode, Amy's Choice. The BBC's cleverly scheduled Just William for an entire week in the early afternoon during the school break when its target audience would be hungry for an entertaining romp. And who knows, they might even check out the books. Toast. Food writer Nigel Slater wrote a best-selling autobiography about growing up and Lee Hall adapted it for this BBC TV movie. Young Nigel is stuck in the 1950s with a mum who knows nothing about cooking. She refuses to buy fresh vegetables and instead boils tin cans whole for dinner. And when that usually fails, the family ends up eating toast, hence the title. Nigel, whom we suspect pretty early on is gay, spends his nights looking at books under the covers. But they aren't porn, they are cookbooks, and he caresses mouth-watering photos of spaghetti bolognese, which his food-phobic parents will never try. Despite Mum's complete inability to cook, Nigel is devoted to her, and he is crushed when she dies from a lung disease, leaving him with his middle-class, boring father, played by Ken Stott. 
Stott then employs a house cleaner named Mrs. Potter, played by Helena Bottom Carter. As she did in Enid earlier this year, or in the Harry Potter series, Bottom Carter has perfected playing characters that are both charming and malevolent. Mrs. Potter begins cooking for the family, but Nigel fights back by learning how to cook himself and finds himself in direct competition with her. We're supposed to despise Nigel's dad and Mrs. Potter, but it feels too much like Nigel the writer is merely getting back at people whom he feels did him wrong when they can't fight back. Did Nigel expect his dad to remain celibate the rest of his life just because he was a widower? And he completely fails to realize that it's not just food that is going to make his dad choose Mrs. Potter over him every time. And make no mistake, Mrs. Potter is a great cook. It takes Nigel months of spying to figure out her secret recipe for lemon meringue pie and copy it. In her dyed blonde hair, common accent, and a fag between her lips, you can see why Nigel might have been repelled by Mrs. Potter, but from the point of view of an adult, Bottom Carter doesn't come off too poorly. But Nigel is the hero of his own story, of course, and eventually leaves home without forgiving his dad for eventually marrying Mrs. Potter. Nigel moves to London and, if the movie is to believe, gets a job in the kitchen of the Savoy Hotel after one quick back-alley interview. For those who love Nigel Slater or his book, it's probably all validation, but coming to this material new, it seemed a bit like point scoring after the fact. Have you read or watched any of Nigel Slater's no, stuff? No, I haven't. No. He was, on, he was on TV this week, in fact. I yep. saw a listing for one of his programs. I'm just not familiar with him at all. but No, nor I. But his book was a very big hit over there when it came out. So, who knows? Maybe they just didn't quite do the adaptation quite right, or... You know, he's kind of said that he really did not care for his dad or his uh, stepmother mm -hmm. and was glad to be rid of them. So, okay. who knows? 2010 Unwrapped with Miranda Hart. Somewhere, David Mitchell has to be a bit annoyed with the BBC News Department, which sandbagged his attempts to use them and do fake news for his panel show The Bubble earlier this year. But the 2010 Unwrapped folks apparently did not have the same restriction and gleefully mashed up news items that purported to have the Pope guest starring on Top Gear. They even CGI him sitting across from Jeremy Clarkson in the Top Gear yeah, studio. Yeah, pretty well done. <laughs> of course, they're playing on the fact that the Pope went to England. Yep. Steve Jobs on Dragon's Den getting turned down for his new invention. The Apprentice with an idiot Irishman intercut into a real episode as a contestant. Vuvuzelas during the Prime Minister's debate. A vicar getting the Ann Robinson treatment on The Weakest Link. Gordon Brown lost in the woods. And an amateur dramatic society's version of Big Brother. That was my favorite with the guy at the deerstalker hat playing the piano in the corner. That was wonderful. <laughs> yes, meanwhile, Miranda Hart does Lynx dressed up as a Dickens character in a Victorian setting, doing what she does best, namely pratfalls and asides to the camera. 2010 Unwrapped was a great combination of computer-aided video trickery and satire. Have they done this before? Is this uh, something that's done annually? Second year. Oh, yeah, okay. They did it last year as Who well. Who hosted it last year? She did. Oh, was it her? Yeah. Check the credits to see if she was also one of the writers, but she wasn't. Mm -hmm. She was just brought in for one day to, yeah. you know, do the links. She's a bit busy, that girl. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. I was very, I too. very amused by that. I watched that. that and Charlie Brooker's special as well. Went back to back and quite enjoyed both of them. Eric and Ernie. Victoria Wood devised this BBC TV movie biopic that told the early years of one of Britain's most beloved comedy double acts, Markham and Wise. She also plays Sadie, the mother of young Eric Bartholomew, a relentless stage mother who makes her feckless son take dancing lessons and go on theater auditions doing a schoolboy routine. 
Meanwhile, we meet Ernie Wise, who's already a huge hit doing vaudeville with his dad, played by Reese Shearsmith. But when the West End beckons, they only want Ernie, and Dad realizes his son is more talented than he is and will be more successful. Eric and Ernie cross paths, with Ernie the star and Eric the newcomer being chaperoned by Sadie. It's the war years, and circumstances put the boys together, where their initial distrust of each other melts into a realization that they have the same comic sensibilities and a double act is born. Eric changes his last name to Morecambe, and after the war, they tour the country with great success. Sadie becomes an unofficial mother of Ernie, but we also get to see Eric's dad, George, react to his success. George is played by Jim Moore, better known as Vic Reeves of Reeves and Mortimer fame, a modern-day double act that has been compared to Morecambe and Wise. The boys have success on radio and then decide to take their act to television in 1954 with the BBC. Alas, putting themselves in the hands of BBC writers and producers because they must know what they're doing spells disaster for Eric and Ernie and their show Running Wild, which bombs horribly. Will this be the end of the double act? Should Sadie intervene, or does Eric finally need to stand up and make the first move for reconciliation? Two sets of actors play Morecambe and Wise, first as boys and later young men. Harry McIntyre looks amazingly how Ernie Wise would have as a kid, and Brian Dick is equally good as the older Ernie. The success of this TV movie caught BBC Two by surprise with over 6 million people tuning in on Saturday night to watch it, a 14-year high for drama on that channel. Clearly, the public is still very interested in Morecambe and Wise, whose much-anticipated Christmas specials in the 1970s were considered required viewing in Britain. Now, you pointed out to me that Brian Dick is one of those stealth actors who's been turning up in tons of things here. Yeah, he's, he probably has a very nice house with all the guest work he gets to do, and, and lead roles as well. I, I really enjoyed him in 10,000 Streets Under the Sky, along with Sally Hawkins. That was a few years ago. But he's guested in... Torchwood, mm-hmm. playing Adam, the one who was manipulating people's memories, so they thought he'd been around for ages, a member of the team, and was dating Yosh and everything else. And he was in Being Human, playing a fellow ghost who teaches Annie how to resist the doors. And it's just funny, if you look at him in the IMDb, you see that he really just pops up everywhere. And is really um, he has a very good everyman sort of face, much like Martin Freeman. You can conjure up Martin Freeman's face in front of, if you're thinking about him, but Brian Deck, he has a much more changeable face, I think. Well, whatever they did, I guess maybe it was the blonde hair. They, he really did look like Ernie mm-hmm. Wise. It was yeah, really he, astonishing. He, his appearance changes a lot between projects. That might be one of the reasons you didn't couldn't place him when I was mentioning that. But yeah, I looked at his credits and I was like, well, I must have seen him in all these yeah. programs because mm-hmm. I've seen all these. Right. It's uh, Brian Dick, and that was in Eric and Ernie. And of course, they repeated many of their famous Christmas specials over the holiday weekend. And they were pulling in 1.7 million people to watch a 34-year-old Christmas special. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. And finally, we have Zen. The detective novels by Michael Dibden have been adapted by the BBC in this series starring Rufus Sewell as Aurelio Zinn. Apparently, he's from Venice, which is what he says whenever anyone asks about his unusual last name. As a police detective in Rome who is separated from his wife and lives with his mother, Zen is thorough but not out of sync with the slightly dodgy nature of justice in Italy. In the first story, a mysterious government official wants Zen to get a confessed murderer off before he embarrasses the powers that be. But Zen's bosses at police headquarters tell him 
He better find the suspect guilty as charged. Listen, once you start digging, God knows what you'll turn up. Maybe the holes can't be closed up. Maybe the holes shouldn't be closed up. But I don't care if you find Oscar Faso alive and well in a bar in Venice. You hand this case back exactly the way you found it. Yeah, I've always been very good at the politics, Aurelio. It was all about talent and brains. It'd be you sitting here now with angina and a headache. But, you know, compromise isn't always dishonesty. Flexibility isn't always corruption. Something high profile like this is a chance for you to get back to the level where you belong. Don't blow it. Because if you tear this case down and Favaloni walks, it makes everyone look very bad indeed. And this time, you will not be forgiven. Meanwhile, Zen takes an interest in a new secretary at the station, even though she's married and several of his colleagues have their eyes on her as well. Zen's case takes him to a remote village, but unknown to him, an old case is coming back to haunt him with possibly fatal results. The visual style for Zen is right out of the 1970s with power zooms and extreme rack focus shots. But Sewell cuts a good figure, he took the job because he wanted to do something a bit lighter, and there's a harrowing scene in an underwater cave where Zen nearly drowns. It must have been very unpleasant to shoot, particularly wearing a three-piece suit and soaking wet. The production has a slight twinge of British cultural superiority hovering over the Italian countryside, with corruption seemingly inherent everywhere Zen goes. And Zen is a co-production with PBS's Masterpiece, so expect the three-part series to appear in the U.S. later this year. I don't know if you saw all the episodes of The Vice, but after the second series, that's Mark Warren's character was written out of the series by being drowned by some gangsters. And i that's what I thought when they hoisted him out of the Thames was, oh, that must have been horrible. <laughs> he must have been so cold because it looked like it was in the winter too. And I, I don't think it was a fake Mark Warren. I think it was really him. It, it looked pretty realistic. Yes, they, they can't heat the Thames either. At least no. in this series, presumably these were fake caves and they were all heated. The water was heated. But still, they probably did those water scenes over days. It, it looked really grueling. I thought, wow, he's a good sport for doing these <laughs> scenes. But yeah, I saw an interview with uh, Rufus Sewell, and he just uh, he said he's not interested in doing movies, mm-hmm. and he hated doing American television. I just know him from uh, Dark City, yeah. which, which we call Dark City, just, just because we're silly. My friend Mike and I who saw it, and great look. but He know. said he came out of drama school, and he wanted to do comedy, but you know, because of his looks and the kind of parts he was offered, mm-hmm. he started doing all these serious parts, but he really wants to do much lighter stuff, and that's why the Aurelio Zen stuff appealed to him. Yep. And plus he felt that it could run long enough to give him a chance to do something different with it. I remember him in Cold Comfort Farm quite distinctively, too. I liked that picture a lot. Watched it a few times on video. Hmm. So, yeah, I've liked him for quite a while, but it doesn't really change in looks, though. He's still his handsome old self, just carrying on. Yeah, and he's a bit better looking than the Aurelio Zen that's described in the books. He's a little more paunchy and a little bit older. But, you know, if he does it for 10 years, who knows? Yep. More Rufus. We like Rufus. News. Well, Pete Postlethwaite died. The great character actor who became a star, Pete Postlethwaite, died Sunday in Britain from lung cancer. He was well known on the big screen in movies like Inception, The Lost World, and The Usual Suspects, but he also had a pretty good career on TV as well. He played Eric in 1989's Tales of Sherwood Forest, a Cheers-like drama set in a bar called Rick's Cafe, although inexplicably the sign outside said Sherwood Forest. 
He was Tig Mong Tag in the 1994 adaptation of Martin Chuzzlewick. And in 2000, he played Len Green in the series The Sins. This seven-part BBC miniseries each highlighted a different deadly sin. The series begins as Len is released from prison where he was serving time as a getaway driver for some East End gangsters. His wife, played by Geraldine James, and three daughters named Faith, Hope, and Charity, the symbolism wasn't too subtle here, are anxious for him to return to his life of crime and keep them in the lifestyle to which they are accustomed. But Len astounds all his mates and family by deciding to go straight and eventually ends up working at his uncle's mortuary business. Each episode has him tempted by yet another sin, and he nearly succumbs every time until he learns his lesson. And he also played Hooch in the 2008 season of Criminal Justice. One of the strangest things I ever saw Pete Postlethwaite appear in was a 1997 Labor Party political broadcast where he played a magical cab driver who was able to deliver a last-minute undecided voter to the polling place in time. To an American, seeing an established actor doing a political ad was a bit of a surprise. But it couldn't have hurt. Labor won in a landslide. So Pete Postlethwaite was 64 years old. Ah, oh, bugger. That lung cancer. Hmm. What's on TV for the week of January 5th to the 11th? Wednesday, Carpool on Dave has Robert Llewellyn interviewing Joe Brand and Jason Byrne. Have you caught any of those yet? Nope. Hmm. Channel 4 has Barbara Windsor, a comedy roast hosted by Jimmy Carr. Oh, gracious. All right. Above Suspicion finishes on ITV1. There's a Nevermind the Buzzcocks compilation special on BBC2. Have you been watching those? I've skipped Nevermind this year. I haven't watched him since Simon left. Hmm. So, even though I, I like Noel and I, I like the show. There's just so many panel shows now that so you really can be yeah, choosy. I've got such stacks of things I need to get get viewing that it, it's gone back burner without the draw of Simon being so outrageously funny every week. Thursday, Martin Clunes does a nature special for ITV1 called... Man to Mementa, about manta rays. Boy, my mom and, and her best friend Mary, they, they're just giggly over Martin Clunes because of Doc Martin. Now they just think he's great. They could join, I guess, in the new Come Fly With Me with Dave and Matt. They Some of their characters are some Japanese schoolgirls who have come to Britain to track down Martin Clunes. He's their ultimate idol. So my mom and Mary could just join the Japanese schoolgirls and I'll go form a little Martin Clunes fan club society there. There's a bit of a backlash against Come Fly With Me there with all the different uh, stereotypes they're doing. Mm-hmm. A lot of Asian characters and stuff. But Well, I found out today one of the gals I work with was a big Little Britain fan, and she didn't know they had a new show, so I stuck it in Google, and, and the thing that came up was them being accused of racism for blacking up and browning up, which they've done before and have been accused of before. And she was a woman of color, and she just thought it was hysterical. She thought it was funny. She didn't care. Have you watched Comply With Me yet? No, I haven't. Not yet. I skipped the second episode. Uh, the ratings went down. Well, they've rejiggered the ratings for Christmas Day now. So mm-hmm. instead of 10.3 million, it actually beat Doctor Who in the final Barb ratings and was about uh, 12.2. Mm-hmm. But uh, this week's episode only got like 7.2, and then they're shifting it to Thursday night. Which, as a matter of fact, it's it is... comedy night. Yes, Come Fly With Me is on Thursday night on BBC One instead of being on Saturday. So who knows what that'll do to the ratings. Not going out 
and it will return to BBC One for a fourth season. That's the comedy buy-in starring Lee Mack as a northern ice cream salesman sharing a flat in London. Unfortunately, Miranda Hart isn't in this season, which was brought back from the dead by BBC after it originally canceled the show. I found it kind of a fun, charming show, very low-key, but Mm -hmm. Miranda was very funny in it, so she'll be missed. Channel 4 has Darren Brown Enigma, a recording of his latest stage show. And we did a feature on Darren Brown in show 35. Yeah, they're doing a documentary about him, too. The Darren Brown Night. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. Friday, Hustle returns for a seventh season. But still no Mark Warren. Yes, Sorry, Chrissy. And no Jamie Murray. Uh, but the crew from last year are back for more cons on unsuspecting villains. Jamie Murray was off being H.G. Wells in Warehouse 13. <laughs> that was very peculiar. <laughs> QI on BBC One on Friday has guests Robert Webb, Ronnie Ancona, and Phil Jupitus. The Graham Norton Show is on BBC One. On Saturday, Primeval continues on ITV One. Well, there we go. Channel 4 has a Darren Brown night, including a new documentary called Behind the Mischief, which looks at his personal life with contributions by celebrity fans. And as they do in this interactive age, fans can vote on which special they would like to have shown afterwards. Yeah. Do you ever look at his blog? I really... I am on his Twitter feed, but, I don't, but which usually has links to his blog. Because he, his webmaster and his PA also post. His webmaster does the most, actually. She puts up science links to different science and... And articles, but he did an art uh, portrait exchange with an artist friend of his who's an older gentleman where he painted the pic- a picture, a portrait of him, and the other fellow did one of him. And they've got videos that he took in his house of his portrait, which was done as a reverse mask image, which means if you stand at the right angle, almost any angle, really, unless you're looking at it really from the side, it appears to follow you around the room. And mm. Its eyes moves and its face moves. And he, he put his parrot on top of the picture and then took the movie of it and then and then shot the parrot for a while and stuck it all on YouTube. Shot the parrot? Oh, well, no. poor Polly. Filmed the parrot. Ah. Videoed the parrot. <laughs> taped the parrot. Okay. Sunday, Lark Rise to Candleford is back on BBC One for its fourth season. The charming period drama set in a market village in the 19th century stars Julia Sawala, Mark Heap, and Olivia Hallinan. Wild at Heart returns to ITV One for a sixth season about the British family living in Africa. Stephen Tompkinson and Haley Mills star and Warren Clark guests. ITV One premieres that Sunday night show, its attempt at topical comedy with host Adrian Childs and guests Catherine Tate and Sean Ryder. Zen continues on BBC One. Monday, Silent Witness begins another two-part mystery on BBC One. A new series called Episodes begins on BBC Two. It's about two British writers, played by Stephen Mangan and Tamsin Grigg, who attempt to remake their successful British show in the United States, and the lengths they'll go to get it on air. Matt LeBlanc plays himself as the actor who has miscast to replace Richard Griffith, oh yes, from the original. You can see how this is going wrong. This is a co-production with Showtime in America, which begins running the series on Sunday. Presumably, this precludes an American remake of episodes ever happening. There we go. That would get very meta, wouldn't it? Yes. <laughs> it's So they're having to appeal to two different audiences because it's, mm-hmm. you know, BBC and Showtime. Yep. 
uh, it'll be interesting to see what kind of comic sensibility they try to make of the whole thing. But I'm presumably it's just a big parody of American TV standards and stuff. I mean, the British love making fun of that. Of course, uh, Stephen Mangan and Tamsin Grigg were together in Green Wing. Yep. And we just saw Stephen recently in Dirk Gently. Mm-hmm. So that should be very interesting. And Shameless is back on Channel 4 for its eighth season and a run of 22 episodes. Wow. Will Frank Gallagher finally tie the knot with Libby? David Threlfall and Polly McLynn star. Another episode airs Tuesday. And we'll have a feature about Shameless and its American remake next week. Tuesday, Silent Witness concludes its two-part mystery on BBC One. There's a new season of the long-running Scottish police drama Taggart on ITV One. Hugh's Fish Fight is on Channel 4 with Hugh Fernley Whittingstall investigating the world's diminishing fish, fish docks and sets out to understand what is happening to the British fi- fishing industry. It concludes on Wednesday. We did a feature about Hugh in show 52. You say fish stocks twice fast. Fish stocks. Yeah, it's not, no, no, I'm just kidding. You it's, fish stocks. Fish stocks. Yeah. Yes. You, you did say it properly. It's just, but right. that, is a, that is a tongue twister. It's kind of a tongue twisty paragraph, actually, but there we go. Oh, sorry. Well, any sentence that has Hugh Friendly Whittingstall in it, you know, <laughs> there's lots of traps that can be set for you. Shameless continues on Channel 4. In the United States, on BBC America Wednesday, I Do Anything continues. Friday, Law & Order UK. Saturday, Primeval continues, and it's followed by The Graham Norton Show. Top Gear is on Monday. On Showtime, Sunday, the first episode of Episodes with Matt LeBlanc premieres, followed by the American remake of Shameless with William H. Macy. I got a email... Um, inviting me to a showing of it tomorrow in, uh, at the Seven Gables. Just a little test screening, I guess, for word of mouth. Yeah, I think also they're going to make it, uh, sometimes they make the pay channels free for mm-hmm. as an introduction. I think they're going to do that this weekend, or at least it will be on demand, because they really want people to catch the first yeah. episode of Shameless. And no doubt we'll tell you all about it next week. Also on Sunday on most PBS stations, Masterpiece debuts Downton Abbey in the first of four 90-minute episodes. The Daily Mail moaned last week that PBS were cutting two hours in re-editing the series, but they can't do math and don't realize there aren't any commercial breaks on public television. Mm-hmm. Hugh Bonneville, Dame Maggie Smith, and Elizabeth McGovern star in this highly acclaimed ITV drama. We did a review of it back in show 52, but here it is in a nutshell. The start of a great year on Masterpiece, so don't miss it. Craig Ferguson is going to have Alex Kingston as a guest on the Late Late Show on CBS Thursday night. He tweeted that he finally cleared the Doctor Who cold opening and will show it that night in honor of Alex, who plays River Song. Technically, I guess it's on Friday morning since the show starts like 12.37 a.m. Friday, so set your DVRs accordingly. You have a theory about who River Song is going to turn out to be? Oh, lots of theories. Yeah. It's the Ronnie. She's a future regeneration of the Doctor. She's future Amy Pond. Take your pick. I think it was um, somebody pointed out that Ronnie in Hebrew means song. So that was something that RTD could have thrown in there. But I don't think it's going to be something we've seen before. Okay. I mean, it's frankly more interesting to do something original. And they've sort of promised there aren't going to be any recurring classic series monsters in this new season. So no Daleks. Obviously the Udu show up because we saw them in the trailer. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what they do. I'm, I'm sure he's going to pull something very clever out and that we don't expect. Good, good, good. Well, that's what we like. 
DVD releases. Dirty Tricks. Martin Clunes stars in this two-part ITV adaptation of a novel about a middle-brow English language teacher who tries to move up the ladder of social respectability by romancing the wife of a friend of his boss. Lindsay Duncan, James Bolam, and Julie Graham also co-star. And we did a feature on Martin Clunes back in show 57. Bet your mom would like that. Yep. Enemy at the Door, series two. This 1980 ITV series was about the German occupation of the Channel Islands. The Guilty, a 1992 BBC miniseries starring Michael Kitchen in what was called a, quote, terrifying psychological thriller. The Sarah Jane Adventures, the complete third season, is now out on DVD. This includes the episode that guest starred David Tennant as the Doctor. Unlike the first two seasons, which were shown on the Sci-Fi Channel, the third and fourth seasons have yet to be run in the United States. So if you want to see them, legitimately, this is your way. And they even have a little sticker on the box that says, it's the last filmed appearance of David Tennant as the Doctor, because that was... They were all done way after the specials. Until he shows up on Comic Relief in 10 years or something. Well, yes. <laughs> when he retrieves his, his outfits, which he did, didn't he say he has them stored away from his house so no one will break into his house and steal his Doctor Who. Did you see the code? big news about David Tennant this week? No. He's going to get married to oh. Georgina Moffat. The Sun reported, supposedly oh. on New Year's Day next year. Well, the Sun. Oh, well. The Sun gets some things right. Probably. I haven't seen anybody deny it, and so it made it all over the Twitter feeds, and all the ton of fangirls like, oh no, David! Oh well. At least he doesn't have people, he probably won't have people threatening her like poor Justin Bieber, who was photographed with a girl who's, and this poor girl's now is getting death threats from all these teenage psycho... Is Justin Bieber even legal? No, he's only 16 years old. Yeah. He was on the Graham Norton show, though, a few weeks ago, and afterwards he admired John Waters' mustache, so John Waters handed him an eyebrow pencil so Justin could draw one on two, <laughs> and then they were photographed together with their twin mustaches. <laughs> Great. Our feature this week is our Best of the Year review. What were our favorite programs of 2010? Why don't you start off with something? Well, these was something... Um, I got very excited into being human, and I was late to the party because it had already shown the first series, but I hadn't watched it. So uh, I got to watch all of the first series and then enjoy the eight series of of season two. And eight I episodes probably, of season two. Right, ep- episodes. And I probably spread that more far and wide than anything else this year. Really enjoyed sharing it with friends, and that now, of course, they all want to know when's the next season, when are more Have more, you more. seen the teasers? Yes, with... with Annie. Yeah, I have. I saw those. It had a huge, huge, huge web presence for the first two seasons. I downloaded all of the YouTube featurettes that interested me. There were some that didn't, and they added up to about three hours of stuff, and really good, good things, too. Webcams where each of the stars got to take a little web crammer around the set, but also prequels. You got to see where all sorts of different characters met and how they became what they are now, and it was it was big fun. So I can't think of another show, really, that has that much support on the web for each episode that's worth watching. BBC America seems to be very keen on it, too, because they've got Lenora Critchlow introducing some program there, and it's like, Lenora Critchlow presents da 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 Well, like, hey. And, of course, uh, your favorite... Uh, 
Hi, Russell. Russell Tovey. Yes. And then Aiden Turner, who's going to turn up in The Hobbit. But we've already filmed uh, I these like episodes. Aiden Tur- he, it's so funny because I would say he has one of the friendliest faces I've ever seen. It's funny seeing him play a vampire because he really just has... He's a friendly vampire, He looks like though. such a very decent person, like you'd want him in your family, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he's probably a bastard. No, Aiden, I'm sure you're a nice guy. I'm, I'm sure kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, so, yeah, I'm sure when they get shown, BBC America will uh, get those on their Sci-Fi Saturdays, as mm-hmm. they're calling it. Right now, they're, of course, running Primeval. Yeah, we haven't seen a premiere date for that, but, uh, yeah, Being Human... I'm going to rank my thing. So number 10 would be You Have Been Watching. And Charlie Brooker is always essential watching, and this celebrity panel show allows him to do what he does best, rant about the best and worst that's on television. And you can listen to our feature about Charlie Brooker from show 29. It was nice because it was sort of topical. You know, usually he does these sort of wrap-ups or a series that he's researched for quite a while, but this way he could actually react to things as they were going on, mm-hmm. like that annoying yeah, Graham I'm... Norton animation on Doctor Who, and he's able to go off for three minutes about what yeah, idiots they I are at the that. BBC. So the things he liked and didn't like, and it's nice that he's a, a Doctor Who fan. And we're going to see Charlie Brooker on the that new Channel 4 topical comedy show, which is the spinoff from the general election program that they did that's going to have... Jimmy Carr as well? Jimmy Carr yeah. and... David Mitchell. Yeah, I have to stick with my QI and have I got news for you. Well, speaking of QI, that's number nine on my list. I think it's the best of the panel shows because you always learn something new mm-hmm. and it's worth turning into each week to see what sort of joke buzzer they'll give Alan Davis. And Alan goes... <laughs> oh, tremendous. I would say I've watched every Have I Got News for You in the last 10 years, but for a while I, th- I felt they were lagging a little bit and the extended versions weren't really that exciting but i've i've enjoyed them a lot this year i've kept on top of british the news as it's seen in britain more than the united states at some points just so i'll get all the jokes during the have i got news for you season and so that would have to be on my list since you took qi yeah i'm waiting a couple extra days to catch the extended versions of have i got Mm -hmm. news for you because it's not really fun to watch it twice but to get it with fresh i love watching it really fresh because in the past we would watch it Months. Yeah, months <laughs> after Later. it came on. And and so it's nice to read about the Chilean miners, you know, or to watch Benedict introducing those stories just days after it's really happened. It was kind of makes it extra fun. Yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch was the host of the season opener. Mm-hmm. And when they get a great host like Brian Blessed or something like that, it's just hilarious. Yeah. From a couple seasons back. So have I got news for you? Yeah. Well, Martin Clunes always does a good job. So, Well, and Alexander Armstrong just, apparently yeah. has been the most frequent guest host. He was. Now. In fact, they thought he would. I read an interview with them in which when they hadn't decided to keep guest hosts, they were angling towards him doing it permanently. And he was heartbroken when that didn't happen. He wanted that gig. Well, he gets a. He still shows up once yeah, or twice a does. season, and he's got his own BBC One sketch comedy show. He's, he's a man of many talents too. He actually is a really good singer. But the only time I've heard him sing was on one of those little Simon Nye pantos they did years ago. I think he was a Prince Charming in one of them or Cinderella, oh. and he sings beautifully. So he could start doing West End musicals if he's got a voice that you know. If he could stand doing eight shows a week, <laughs> he might not have that strong a voice. But for one show, he sounded great. My number eight would be Ashes to Ashes. 
It was a fantasy serial that managed to wrap up its central mystery with a satisfying resolution that didn't make you feel you'd wasted five years of your life waiting for it. Philip Glenester will forever be Gene Hunt, there are worse ways of being typecast, and it showed how you could be politically incorrect and satiric at the same time. And BBC America apparently is in no hurry to run the third and final season, more's the pity. Yeah, I can't understand it. They waited a year to show the second season, and they were really promoting the heck out of it. They And I figured, oh, they'll just back it up second and third season together. And then they stop at the end of the second season, which has a massive cliffhanger. And it's a year later, and there's no sign of it. Well, I'm going to say for mine, then, I liked this River Cottage offshoot that they did in the summer called Three Hungry Boys. And it was such a fluke. These boys were... They're all um, late 20s. They met during college. They're all, they all studied marine biology, and they're off working different aspects of it. One's teaching, one's doing research, and I think another is in a different field now. But they're very outdoorsy types. They, they know their way around a rowboat and how to fish in different types of waters and, and great friends, and they loved camping. So they just emailed Hugh that they thought they could spend a whole month taking a vacation anywhere in Britain without spending any money. And he called their bluff. And they have and no TV experience, no, right? No, they're, they're all, they're quite charming. They can speak to the camera. Obviously they had to go and meet Hugh and he had to see, Hey, these are some good looking lads and well-educated and, and, but he set them up. They had a ferry pass that went for most of the ferries up in Scotland. And he sent them up to the Hebrides and, they had a van, and they could sleep in the van, although it was incredibly crowded. So if the weather was at all promising, even if it was, you know, as long as it wasn't blowing gale force, they would set up tents so they could each have a little tent. They could cook over this tiny little stove and oven in the van. But it was a great show. And so I also have um, took a wilderness first aid class during the summer, and I gave a copy of the series to my instructor because he's, he's an outdoor enthusiast, and he ended up sharing it with his girlfriend and loving it. That was called? Three Hungry Boys. How many episodes total were there? I think there were eight. And that was on Channel 4? Yeah, there were half hours. I was sniffing around the Sundance Channel website and noticed that they have run River Cottage Mm -hmm. on that channel at some point. I don't know which series it was. Some of his cookbooks are out here. I bought bought a couple of them. I was going to... I got my hairdresser onto River Cottage because she loves... The whole idea of warm, cozy Britain, and she likes that kind of food, so I got her one for a tip the next time I'm in there to get my do done. Okay. My number seven is ideal. Mm -hmm. Though at times violent, the pure absurdity of this Johnny Vegas comedy set in a flat in Manchester features more strange characters coming through than the League of Gentlemen. Plus, it's funny with great one-liners written by Graham Duff. Janine Garofalo was so enamored of the show, which runs in the USA on the IFC channel, that she asked to be in it. And we did a feature on Johnny Vegas in show 61. I just found myself getting more and more into that show and just uh, the huge cast it is. I and mean, it would just take forever to explain how all the characters are interrelated. And the fact that there's a gangster running around called Cartoon Head, who's a guy who literally has a cartoon mouse face stuck mm-hmm. to his face. You never see his real face. And he never talks, but, but everybody knows what he's saying. I'm trying to think, you know, there wasn't anything I was absolutely insane over this year, like Spaced or some of my all-time favorites, but I really did like Being Human, and I liked Sherlock a lot, and I just watched a lot of the ongoing QI, Have I Got News for You. I didn't 
really make it a point to watch every Graham Norton, but I probably should have because I always enjoy it. I, I've never known him to have an off show, which is pretty amazing, I think. Well, now that BBC America is running the same week it runs in Britain, you know, yeah. get your mom to tape it for you. That's true. Well, my mother does, does like Graham. You know, I took a trip, a long trip, almost six weeks to the UK and Ireland and France in 1999. And I had the best timing for so many things there. But if I had stayed just a few days longer, I could have actually met Graham because one of my tape trading partners was writing for the show at the time, but they weren't in production. They were just about to Hmm. go back. So that was the one thing I regret because everything else about that trip, I saw Eddie Izzard twice, saw him in a play and I saw him do stand up because he was doing both. I saw Alan Davis do stand up. I went to show tapings and saw Carolyn Quinton, went to the comedy store players. I mean, I did really well in terms of seeing all my favorites, met Paul Merton and all the comedy store players at a pub and chatted with them. But didn't get to meet old Graham. That was that was a shame. Well, he's still around, and yep. who knows? Maybe who knows? maybe your fame will precede you next time because of this podcast. Oh, that's right. Or not? Yeah, I'm, and I'm actually starting to lose my voice, so I'll let you talk some more. <laughs> well, you mentioned Sherlock. I have that number five. I'm going to skip ahead here. It's a British TV show that even my in-laws watch. Mm-hmm. When I went back uh, to the Midwest over Christmas, they were like, "Have you seen Sherlock?" And, of course I have. But but yes, my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, they've all watched Sherlock. So let's be doing something right. Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss cooked up an ingenious reimagining of the Sherlock Holmes mythos by setting it in the present day and getting a charismatic lead, Benedict Cumberbatch, to star. Who could ask for anything more? And we did a feature on Sherlock in show 55. Yeah, it made me pull out a few Benedict pieces, too. He was in a Miss Marple, which I had watched, but I watched it again. And I watched the deal he did, Steward a Life, with Tom Hardy, mm-hmm. which was really good. So you should watch Small Island. Okay. Um, it's really good. I, I like the lead in that. And then he plays the woman's uh, husband. And it's kind of a small part, but he's good. But I really like Small Island. I just, I thought it was good. Next is Shameless. We'll be talking a lot more about Shameless next week, but I always make time to catch this great Channel 4 series about life on a Manchester housing estate. It's a brilliant combination of drama and humor with real heart. And Showtime has a remake, but the original has been run on the Sundance channel in the U.S. I love David Threlfall. I'm just fascinated with him. He's just an, he's an actor's actor all the way through. And they, he directs quite a few episodes as well. Yeah, he's, he's so great. So, number four, Downton Abbey. ITV made a quality drama and surprise, 10 million viewers showed up to watch it. Set just before the outbreak of World War I, the story was about the landed aristocracy, the people who served them, and the need to have a line of succession. Julian Fellows wrote great scripts. It was like getting to watch his Gosford Park every week on TV. And Downton Abbey begins this week on PBS, and I highly recommend it if you have any interest in British drama. I assume you've not caught that yet. I thought it was really good. And of course, there's all now the inevitable comparisons of Downton Abbey and Upstairs, Downstairs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I talked last week about the pros and cons of each one of them. I think there's a world for both of them. And you'll get a chance to see for yourselves because they're all going to be on Masterpiece. Number three, Miranda. Mm-hmm. The second season of Miranda Hart sitcom was a huge rating success for B- BBC Two. And I would hazard a guess she'll be on BBC One before too long. The premise is Miranda is a woman child who owns a joke shop but doesn't really seem to have any designs on living an adult lifestyle. Her mother, played by Patricia Hodge, despairs of Miranda ever getting married. And even though Miranda has a crush on the chef at the local restaurant, nothing ever comes of it. 
Hart's ability at physical comedy as a stand-up comedian and actor in Not Going Out and Hyperdrive, she has much experience, is used to great effect. She will do nearly anything for a laugh. The number of times she loses her skirt or clothes was astonishing. Could you see her in anything in the U.S., or is she just too physically different for American casting directors to get over, being so tall? She wouldn't be the lead, but she certainly could do like comic maids or something like that. She could easily steal the show because of her ability to do physical comedy. But Miranda certainly he's toast of the town in England right mm. now. Oh yeah. Even though people, a lot of people think her series is a real throwback because it's you know it's a three camera show. Mm-hmm. It's done in front of a live audience. I mean, it seems like an old sort of seventies type sitcom, but it is very modern and. Uh, she was in the documentary about the Eric and Ernie special. And she says that, you know, she's completely stealing from Eric Morcom of doing asides to the camera. Mm-hmm. That's Eric Morcom, and she does it in her sitcom, too. And she thinks that's really great, being able to break the fourth wall like that and, you know, stare at a camera and, and make some funny comment to the audience. That's what makes her comedy really work. So hopefully some smart broadcaster will import her show pronto. And we did a feature on Miranda Hart in show 40. Number two on my list was Misfits. As we talked about in show 60, Misfits is a clever blend of humor and drama with five teenagers coping with superpowers on their housing estate. Robert Sheehan has been making an impression for several years now, but his character of Nathan is one of the funniest and foulest characters on TV. Boy, the things they have him do. Alas, this digital E4 show is so mired in obscurity that it barely rates a repeat on terrestrial TV in Britain, and nobody has the balls to run it in the United States. Nevertheless, it's become a huge cult series thanks to social networking and the internet. Yeah, I was going to recommend that to my uh, my little uh, 17-year-old Midwestern girl, the one I got started with Sugar Rush and then moved uh, on to being human. You and... better make sure the language doesn't freak out her parents. No, it And won't. the sex. No. Okay. No, don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have to be severely cut or end up on you know pay cable here to be shown because it's mature audience for sure. So can you guess what my number one pick of the year is? Since we haven't talked about it yet. Oh. Hmm. No. What is your number one pick? Oh, Doctor Who, of course. Oh, okay. (laughs) Like many longtime fans of Doctor Who, I feel a certain sense of vindication that this show, which I have watched and loved for nearly three decades, has finally been embraced by the British public and been given considerable respect by American broadcasters, Sci-Fi, and now BBC America. With Stephen Moffat firmly in charge this year, with a perfect leading man in the form of Matt Smith, the series is running on all cylinders. I probably would have put Doctor Who at number one even back in the late 1980s when it didn't even deserve it, but I feel no shame in declaring that Doctor Who is my TV highlight for 2010. How did I not even think of that? I love the Doctor Who time of the year, and now we get two times of the year, plus a little mini Christmas one, so yes. it's great. I do. I missed it big time in 2009. Well, I missed it through the entire 1990s, so <laughs> it's a great time to be a Doctor Who fan. And um, honorable mentions uh, that didn't make my top ten list uh, would be The Inbetweeners, How Not to Live Your Life, Being Human, which you talked about, Luther, The Trip, The IT Crowd, just because it had a kind of a so-so season. Although the parody of Countdown was great. Mm-hmm. The Street Countdown was <laughs> really made me laugh. And Any Human Heart, which is going to show up on Masterpiece yeah. as well. So, 2010. 
good year for TV? Yeah. I like Giles and Sue coming back, too. I'm glad they're still working together. But I'm just because I'm a foodie, I liked the supersizers better than hmm. the, the good life. But I, I do think they've got that chemistry. They should continue doing projects together. I like Giles, and I like his sister, too. Well, next week... Shameless is one of the most popular programs on Channel 4, and now there's an American remake set in Chicago. What's it all about, and is the remake any good? We'll find out next week in show 67. Meanwhile, we'd like you to visit our website, www.britishtvpodcast.com, and there you can find links to headlines, show notes, what's on TV this week, and an archive of our previous 65 shows. And you can follow us on Twitter, and our Twitter feed is Brit TV Podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us, feedback at BritishTVPodcast.com. And we haven't promoted it lately, but we do have a Facebook page, too. You can find a link on our website. All right. Well, I'm still catching up on a few things from this week. Uh, yeah. The Bob Monkhouse special, which pretty much is a biography of his life, but shown with the clips that he recorded, his 50,000 tape collection, and apparently he at one time had the third largest private collection of films in the world. Wow. Well, I've read both his autobiographies, and my grandmother one, I gave her, and she quite enjoyed the second. Couldn't give her the first. The first was far too racy, too much of his sexual exploits, because he was a bad boy. He really cheated on his first wife like crazy, and wasn't much of a husband for her and learned from his mistakes. And by the time he married his second wife and she'd been a secretary for him, took him 10 years to convince her that he wouldn't treat her like he had the first. And he ended all his friendships with females because he just had to keep away from temptation to be faithful, which he had promised he would be. But yeah, so I, I couldn't really give her the first book, but she liked the second greatly, which is mostly full of him profiling younger comedians that he's, um, was interested in, like Jim Carrey and uh, Stephen Wright and Paul Merton, and then it was anecdotes of different people that he'd written for, like Jack Benny and Bing Crosby and things like And then little travelogues of trips he was taking with his wife. That was the second book. Yeah, they showed his joke books, which were uh, famously stolen at one mm -hmm. point and ransomed, and yeah. then he got them back. And he would illustrate them, too, and he was a really good cartoonist. They showed some pages of his art, and these are just doodles he did, and they were really good. Yeah, he was, without the joke books for part of the period, he was keeping as a diary for the second book and then got them back. So that was notated in his book. And They aren't out here, but you could probably get them at Albrecht. I noticed Albrecht always has imported paperbacks and things, and they're, good, they're a good read. Well, a lot of his game shows that he did were, of course, wiped by the studios that made them, but because he taped everything... He had one of the first reel-to-reel -reel recorders in the late 60s that he has things that don't exist anywhere else. Yeah. The one that he really lamented not having was a Norman Wisdom routine on one of his shows, which he was rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and was the funniest bit of physical comedy he ever saw. And he just was so sad it was lost forever because he didn't have a copy of that. Hmm. So yeah. Maybe that's what made him start taping everything else. Who knows? He, and he didn't do anything by half ways. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm going to tape everything, and he would tape everything. And if he went on holiday, you'd have to fax a list of people of, here's the shows I need you to record. Wow. Well, that takes me back. <laughs> <laughs> I watched both of the specials on the Royal Family, too, because I hadn't watched the shows. Although I've got a few of them. 
I didn't know they had Jessica Hines wear a, a fat suit because in the I watched some of the earliest first season episodes and she didn't then, but she was a little bit heavier than she normally is because she just had a baby. And I remember her saying that it was really, she found it very, very hurtful that they were making fat jokes at her. It, it made it hard to go to work and hard to be in the show. Which character was she? She played Cheryl, the, the daughter of the Mary and Joe, the next door neighbors. Gosh, I guess yeah. I stopped watching before then. I didn't realize that I, everybody in the whole family pretty much was on the dole, that they never went to work, um, except Barbara, who was doing all the housework anyway, if she couldn't get Anthony to do it, but she worked in a bakery. I sort of forgot there's that sort of thing going on with these housing estates where the bare minimum is well, being Well, that's the whole point in, of Shameless, yeah. and we'll, we'll talk about that next week. Yeah, <laughs> but it was interesting, I, um, and I watched the special... And boy, Ralph Little grew up to be studly. He's he's looking good these days. Really? Yeah, he's he was a scrawny old. old kid. He he looks well. He's still slender, but he's very handsome. And he said that he was just sort of acting for fun. And but his plan was to be a doctor, and he was off to medical pre med studies just out of you know their high school level education. And the royal family was the first big thing he ever got, and that changed his life because he's then got more and more acting roles and went that way instead like harry hill but he also um was came pretty close to being a professional footballer too he's a man of many talents but there was a real cute thing where he went to visit liz smith who is in assisted living now she just moved into ah. a little condo but they have people on hall on call to help her if she can't get up or anything and she was still as liz smithy as ever did she appear in the show um, well, her character died in the whole realm of the royal family. Oh, that was okay. a special a couple of years ago. But in the the little making of, they called it behind the sofa, um, which is more of a Doctor Who thing. But you know, because they're always on the sofa. Yes. So, but he said he hadn't seen her in a couple of years, so he took her this enormous bouquet and sat and had tea with her. And and her, you know, the marbles are all still there, even though the body's starting to fail. She didn't like having the character die. That made her sad. Oh. It made her think of her own imminent mortality but but she was very pretty cheerful in her new apartment it looked very nice she well then you see sue johnston playing these hard-bitten you know police detectives and luther and they yeah they showed a clip of her with ricky playing tomlinson the, yeah they, in the late 80s playing a husband and wife on Brookside, and she looked the same. It's kind of like she's never looked young. She's always looked middle-aged, but then she doesn't change from that point. It was pretty... She's managed to hold everything just so for the last 20 years in her off-camera look. Yeah, Ricky Tomlinson's had a very interesting career, too, because he was quite a labor activist and kind of hurt his career for a while, but he's back. Well, they mentioned... Um, Carolyn mentioned that Sue Johnston is kind of proud of kept her figure and... She looks very, very nice off camera, always very pretty, but they, she doesn't mind that they make her look so horrible and wear those leggings on camera. And, <laughs> and, that, and that Ricky has, has worn the same shirt in every single episode they've ever filmed. Hopefully <laughs> dry cleaned. No, they, have, they, they would take, the cleaning ladies would take it away from him and wash it. Yeah. But yeah, it was the same. Uh, he has one shirt and one pair of jeans. Mm-hmm. And they don't iron it. They want it to look a little crumpled after out of the dryer. All right. Well, we'll see you all next week. Yeah, I guess I'll get my voice back by then. We'll see you then. Doing great. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.